You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Roger. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm pretty good, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you sound surprised. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, it's the middle of the semester and we're slogging along, you know. Okay, so and you're teaching at uh, Union Theological Seminary. Uh, I am indeed. In New yes. York, where yeah. I should Been say. there for 15 years. Where I also have an affiliation, uh, although your affiliation, unlike mine, seems to involve uh, actual work at Union, uh, or more of it uh, than I do. Uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available uh, on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Robert, I'm sorry, you're Roger Haight, uh, a theologian of some renown. Um, you've, uh, you're, you're at Union Theological Seminary. You've written a number of books. We're going to talk about one of them, a new one called Faith and Evolution, A Grace-Filled Naturalism, which I'm holding up to the camera right now for people who are watching this and not just um, listening to it. Um, you also wrote a book called Jesus, Symbol of God, which got you into a certain amount of trouble with Catholic authorities, I gather. You're, you're a Jesuit. Uh, I am a Jesuit, yes. Priest and theologian. Um, before we talk about your new book... Um, why don't we talk a little about, uh, what happened with that book? Cause I mean, that, 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 uh, when I say trouble, uh, you were what? You were, um, prohibited from doing certain things for a while, at least, right? I gathered that, that, uh, uh, Pope Francis during, during the reign of, uh, or <laughs> reign or whatever they call it, uh, the tenure of, uh, Pope Francis, um, the, the the constraints on you were relaxed, is that right? But but uh, initially, what was the what were you prohibited from doing because you had run afoul of uh, doctrine in the eyes of Catholic authorities? Yeah, well, Jesus Symbol of God was a substantial book. It was about five hundred pages, and and it really tried to deal with uh, the theology of Jesus Christ uh, thoroughly uh, from many different perspectives. I mean, it's not a simple discipline anymore. You have to deal with uh, other religions and method in Christology. And there's just a lot of related topics besides the basic history of how we got where we got. In any case, uh, I thought it was a pretty coherent argument, uh, a steady, relentless argument to conclusion. Uh, but it did step on some theological uh, toes. Uh, this is the reign of John Paul II, and um, he is generally considered a relatively conservative pope who mm -hmm. uh, dampened, in a way, the spirit of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, he didn't like too much experimentation in theology, and so he, with uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who was his his head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is kind of an overseer of theological production. And, and in fact, isn't that uh, the modern version of the Office of the Inquisition? I mean, isn't that a, uh, an actual 
uh, its lineage goes all the way back to when it was running the actual Inquisition, right? I, I mean, I, I don't want to over-dramatize what you were subjected yeah. to, but... Yeah, yeah I mean, it went back a long way, and it changed its name a couple of times, and this was its post-Second Vatican Council name, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. But it, but basically what it did is it heard complaints about theologians, and depending on the papacy and the times and, and so on, uh, there would be reaction against it. So I was basically said I couldn't teach at the Jesuit seminary at which I was teaching, Jesuit School of Theology, or excuse me, Western Jesuit School of Theology in Boston. And, uh, and because of that, I, because I was noticed, it became increasingly difficult to teach at a Catholic university itself because I was under under a certain cloud, and bishops uh, tend to be protective of uh, uh, of theology in their dioceses. So Catholic universities weren't eager to to hire me. So that's when I came to Union Theological Seminary. Was it, wasn't weren't you formally prohibited from doing certain things? Uh, later, uh, oh, wait, after, after that, uh, then like writing and teaching about, for a while or something. No, I had been teaching at Union Theological Seminary since 2004. This, this, this condemnation, uh, or prohibited for te- from teaching was 2002. I was teaching reading courses rather than regular courses. I was teaching guided reading courses. But then finally in 2008, after something I w- wrote in America Magazine, uh, I was further, uh, prohibited from teaching anybody anything anywhere at any time. Uh, and so I was pretty much just uh, giving uh, writing and, and doing some guided readings, which I didn't consider to be teaching. Is it possible to say what your perceived infringement was? I mean, was it like, uh, was it like not viewing Jesus as the only path to salvation or something that that's, that is that easy to articulate or is it, yeah, uh, they, they sent, sent a formal document um, enumerating uh, one to eight or nine the different pro- problems that they had, and they began with my method, and it began, with, as I said, with my method, and on a number of key issues, the resurrection of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the theology of the Trinity, theology of salvation, uh, and one or two other things. It wasn't they never questioned whether what I said was true or not, but it didn't conform with Catholic catechetical teaching. Basically, is 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 the uh, is the charge. In other words, they weren't debating the truth right. or falsity of my positions, which I thought were quite well argued in the book. But rather, what I was saying did not conform to the standard positions that were in place, especially as c- c- contained in the. The modern catechism. So, so had you questioned the divinity of Jesus in particular? No, I just interpreted it in a different way. Uh, no, I affirmed the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection. I affirmed the Trinity. I affirmed the divinity of Jesus. I affirmed those all things, but I didn't do it with the theology that is more or less official Catholic theology, insofar so, as that can be identified. So is in, in other words, is the problem in their eyes was the problem what you meant 
by the divinity of Jesus, with your interpretation of what I that would mean? I suppose that that would be a good way of saying it, because theology spells out the underlying construal of doctrinal statements. Mm-hmm. Jesus is divine. Well, what mm-hmm. do you mean by that? And then theology takes over and gives various explanations. Okay. So that's the kind of thing we're going to get into in this conversation. And, you know, your book, uh, your new book is, I think it's safe to say, largely for Christians, but I think it's of interest to other people. It's of interest to anybody who kind of wants to know what 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 it is that uh, theologians do, uh, Christian theologians, and and to some extent, uh, Abrahamic theologians more broadly, maybe, because you, 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 you touch in the book on a whole, on a lot of kind of classic issues of theological um, contention. I do, uh, yeah. Uh, you know, what, what, uh, you know, what we mean by God, um, the question of teleology, uh, the question of eschatology or kind of, you know, end times, um, and all this, uh, uh, all this stuff, the, uh, the problem of evil. Um, so, uh, and, and I should say your, your overarching claim is that, uh, science and theology can engage constructively with one another to the benefit of both, right? Absolutely, yes. Uh, uh, the, the basic idea is that these doctrines, standard doctrines, were formulated pretty early in Christian history, uh, especially the big ones like Trinity and, and uh, the uh, character of Jesus Christ and his understanding of his being both a human being and at the same time, divine, but other doctrines as well. Uh, for example, original sin is really a very early doctrine with Augustine and so on. Um, so um, as everybody kind of takes for granted now, the character of culture and the understanding of reality at any given, at any given time enters intrinsically into how you understand these things. So the supposition is that in an evolutionary world, the post-Darwinian and a modern scientific world, the, the cosmology and our general understanding of reality is so different than the way these doctrines were when they were first formulated that you have to presuppose that in order to be intelligible in this new uh, environment, they'd have to be theologically explained in a different way. Mm-hmm. Not too many theologians are doing that. The dialogue between science and Christianity, science religion and science and Christianity is well developed, but it's done by people in committee, people who have credentials on both sides so that the ordinary theologian who does not understand science as from the inside doesn't really have access to that conversation. And therefore, this whole world of enculturating, making sense culturally out of the doctrines of the church has, has lagged behind. What do you so mean? The- what do you mean when you say by committee? You mean there are actual groups of people who convene, but they kind of, they're kind of exclusive clubs or what? Where are these committees? That's right. Uh, well, the, the, the best manifestation of this is a five-volume work, massive work that was sponsored by the, I think, I forget the institute at uh, uh, University of California at Berkeley, together with the Vatican Observatory, Vatican, Vatican. Hmm. And it's a joint 
authored a five-volume work that took about seven or eight, nine years to be published. And it features sort of the main players in the Christian theology uh, dialogue with science. And many of the people who do that dialogue are theologians who are also scientists. Mm -hmm. And therefore, they have a dual expertise and they can get into some very, very particular uh, problems uh, in the general conversation. Okay. Now, it seems to me that um, the, in, in the book, to some extent, you are addressing issues that arise not just by virtue of the theory of natural selection or knowledge of evolution, although the book is called Faith and Evolution, um, but as you've already suggested, kind of, issues that arise by virtue of a, a scientific worldview being the prevailing worldview, right? So, for example, you pay a fair amount of attention to the issue of divine intervention. Yes. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, I would say that, that that's a... Uh, the idea of divine intervention uh, comes into question from a kind of a broadly scientific frame of mind, right? So, so in other words, it wouldn't just be an evolutionary biologist who would say, I don't have any, uh, there's nothing I, I need divine intervention to explain. A chemist might say that, a physicist might say that. They might all say, look, I believe in a world that, you know, runs in accordance with regular laws. I haven't seen anything that requires special explanation. Now, of course, none of them can be sure there's never been a miraculous intervention because they haven't been watching the whole universe since time began. But they would all, um, you know, scientists of those different kinds might all say, you know, divine intervention uh, doesn't really um, fit uh, I, I, I have no need for that, uh, given my worldview, right? So that, so a lot of the questions you're dealing, I mean, this is to some extent a book about, uh, theology and evolution, but also about theology and science, right? Absolutely. Uh, and I use the word evolution precisely because it's a recognizable world, word and so on, but I use it very, very loosely. I, I go back and, and start to talk about the worldview beginning with the Big Bang and uh, people might not talk about evolution uh, in those terms. They would think more of emergent reality and so on um, uh, because, as you uh, say, evolution is much more of a, of a, of a biological uh, co- concept. So I, I use a lot of these words uh, very, very broadly, and I explain that in the text, that that I am not a scientist, but I'm really sort of trying to um, get at the effects of science on general culture. So it's not a dialogue with scientists so much as a dialogue with a culture that does not seem to promote uh, religious belief, sometimes is skeptical about it. Sometimes, in some some cases, some scientists are aggressively uh, against religion because they see it as a force of uh, illusion and, if not delusion, in in in, in history, and therefore is not is not positive. So, uh, my dialogue partner is really 
Mr. and Mrs. Educated America who has gone through university and has a general idea of science and is aware of the authority that it, it shares. In many cases, it has just simply displaced the, char- the authority of the churches in their own uh, lives and in their own interpretation of reality. Okay, so let's take an issue like intervention, um, like divine intervention. I mean, um, it seems to me it's an issue you uh, really have to wrestle with uh, if you're a, a, a Christian or probably, you know, any any Abrahamic theologian, because if you imagine a God that sets up the universe and then, you know, and, and, and creates the laws of government, but then never intervenes, that's what's called deism. Um, some of the founding fathers were, were, were deists. It's a respectable thing, but it's generally, we think of, uh, Abrahamic religions as being theistic. They, there's, it's a God that is in some sense a hands-on God. Uh, so you, you, um, so one challenge facing you is for you to talk about God in a way that is scientifically respectable, but isn't deism, right? Mm-hmm. Not at all. I, uh, I, I want to uh, have a God that is present to the world, but not in, a, um, in an interventionist way. That is to say, zapping in and zapping out. It seems to me that if your conception of God is such that God is an actor in history, as in, for example, a naive conception of a miracle, uh, then the problem of theodicy, the problem of evil, uh, becomes enormous, just enormous, because there you have uh, the view of a God who could intervene and does not in so many situations of mass, sometimes mass, not to mention individual and personal uses, hits people particularly as individuals and personally, but also on a broader scale, the massive uh, innocent suffering that we uh, see in our, in, our, in our history. So it seems to me that an interventionist God, upon reflection, um, we want to be caring, we want to be present and so on, but we, if God were interventionist, it would magnify the problem of evil to a great extent. So my address there is to try to conceive of God in such a way that God is with us, present to us, concerned about us as the maker of heaven and earth, uh, but at the same time, uh, having given us certain resources to deal with problems that we should be dealing with and not sort of responding to uh, three or four different conflictual demands of the same situation. Mm-hmm. So I would be put into a dilemma there. Should so, I help so, this person's prayer or that person's prayer when they're praying for opposite, opposite uh-huh. goals? So you don't think the winner of the Super Bowl is right, that the reason they won the Super Bowl is because God liked them more than the other team, huh? No, even, even uh, 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 Pope uh, uh, Benedict, the 16th, uh, Ratzinger, said that the Holy Spirit was not responsible for his election. <laughs> okay, much less the Super Bowl. Um, so, uh, so, okay, so that's, 
so are you saying, I mean, classically, the problem of evil uh, grows out of the assertion that God is, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, and benevolent, right? Yeah. And, and it's just hard to square those with the fact of suffering. And, uh, you know, a common, <clears throat> one common uh, attempted solution is to say, well, that's the price of free will. God could uh, keep us from suffering, but God wants us to be free to make our own choices. Inevitably, some people are going to make bad choices, bad for themselves, bad for other people. Your uh, is your solution to say that? Do I understand you say? Well, actually, in a sense, God is not omnipotent. Yeah, uh, I, I would want to first preface my remarks is I, I don't have a solution to what is usually characterized. Yeah, in, in fact, I should say in your book, you call, uh, you know, the theodicy is another term for the problem of evil. And you there's a phrase in your book, the flat out unresolvable problem of theodicy. So, yes, you definitely don't profess to have a solution. Yeah. So I take that that tension between belief in a benevolent God and a good God and a creator God who cares about reality and the existence of a world that is filled with suffering Um some of which is not due to human fault, is just due to uh, the way things happen, uh, tragedies that happen. Uh, uh, so I see no solution to that, but I see an aggravation of the of the problem for an interventionist God, and at least uh, a, uh, a softening of that problem in the explanation that you just gave, namely to allow uh, God is not a determiner of history or evolution. God is there accompanying it, but God is not directing it step by step, and he has left space for human freedom and the openness of the evolutionary process. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, some people might be having trouble imagining what you're imagining i mean in the sense of i guess a god that is not interventionist but 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 is not a merely deistic god right it's kind of like what is that like so a god that's not going to intervene here or there or there but a god that is not entirely hands off so to speak and of course I'm sure part of the problem is that I'm framing this anthropomorphically when I use a phrase like hands off, which you don't encourage, I know. But, yes. um, but, but I'm sure you recognize this problem of kind of conceiving clearly of what you have in mind if it's not an interventionist God and not a deistic God. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, in, I see a lot of, uh, opening in, uh, Christian theology for a dialogue with science and questions like this in the doctrine of creation. And the doctrine of creation is one of those doctrines, which is um, it's phrased very, very uh, simply. Uh, God created all things out of nothing. That's said there was no coterminous matter and so on that God worked with that God somehow called into existence out of God's own power, the power to be. And, uh, that conception is uh, verbally pretty simple, but as soon as you start thinking about it, it gets very, very subtle. For example, it calls for the, exa the existence uh, or the presence of God in all things at all time, because creation is not a doctrine about the beginning of things. It's a doctrine about the relationship of all things to the power of God right now 
creation is going on all the time. Creation is God holding things in existence. And that places God in the very mix of things. Um, there's a phrase for this, um, a term for it, that is quite current today in theology. It's called pan-en-theism. Uh, it's a, uh, a neologism that's uh, contrasting the idea that all is God and God is all things, pantheism, everything is God and God is everything, with uh, everything is within the power of God such that the power of God is within all things, uh, uh, directly present to it and, and, and at work in it and sustaining it and so on. Uh, to uh, negotiate that understanding, um, it requires, as the whole conversation with science does, a kind of nuanced language that transcends talking about God in simple, category, simple, ordinary languages if God were a big person in the sky. Science is a very sophisticated language uh, that only insiders can really understand and do so only by discipline, uh, one discipline at a time. Whereas Christians tend to be afraid of science and talk about science from a very catechetical, simple kind of anthropomorphic understanding of God. So one of the, one of the conditions for the very possibility of having this dialogue with science requires a little bit of sophistication about our theological concepts of God. So rather than simply God is our father, a big person in the sky, I uh, use three, four, five, actually, metaphors for God that are quite abstract, uh, are, are, are used by theologians currently, all of them, and they, um, they allow one not to escape our personal understanding of, of God, which God always transcends, but at least to be a little bit more sophisticated in how we understand God. So I have five of them. Let me just relate them to you. One is God is the pure act of being itself, pure energy of being. That comes from Thomas Aquinas. A second one, similar to that, but quite different, really, is from Paul Tillich, where God is the ground of being. Paul Tillich was at Union Theological Seminary, where you are now, I would add. Just an historical footnote. Amazing uh, to think that occasionally I'm in the same class where Tillich held his seminars. Uh, is that true? You t- you teach in the class where he taught, or have you? Are you, well, you I'm, I'm you assuming know. that he took he had various seminars and taught in multiple classes. Probably, the chances are you have intersected in that right. way. He was there a long time. Right. So anyway, yeah. a third one would be um, God is serendipitous creativity. That comes from Gordon Kaufman, recently deceased professor at Harvard mm-hmm. University, who mm-hmm. is used to this conversation with science, and this is obviously a a conception of God where God is the very energy uh, of, of, of creativity in an evolutionary emergent world and is serendipitous. That is to say, God is open-ended in God's accompaniment and in, in, in energizing the forces of evolution. A fourth one is, comes from Karl Rahner, the prestigious uh, Catholic theologian of the 20th century who mm-hmm. called God uh, simply 
absolute mystery, absolute incomprehensible mystery. It, it's one of uh, Carl Rahner's most penetrating and realistic terms for God. Although wouldn't some say that's kind of dodging the question? <laughs> you know, it's like it's, it's, it, it, it's less a, and, and by the way, I know mystery, you know, mystery is in the, the, uh, the Bible. You can find it in the letters of Paul the term. And, and I gather it's a very, it's a big word in Catholic, uh, theology in particular is my sense that the Catholics growing up hear the word a lot. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, is it, I mean, those other things I would say are in some sense or another characterizations of God. Isn't incomprehensible mystery or whatever kind of a, a refusal to characterize God or is that not fair? Absolutely. Uh, it is, but it has two, two, two elements to it. It has a knowing and an unknowing element to it. In other words, you feel that you're in contact with an absolute incomprehensible mystery that it's surrounding you and and present to you but any language that you that you use falls short and really doesn't really get there so you're in touch with this reality in some way but it it acts like a kind of horizon for your language so that you're always speaking against this absolute re- reality mm-hmm. about this re- absolute re- incomprehensible mystery knowing that you're not really getting there so it's a yeah and i guess it's possible for it's possible for something to be a mystery and yet for you to have some idea like if you're halfway through an agatha christie story you've got some contours in mind as to what the the solution must be like but you're not there so i i guess yeah to say something's a mystery is not to say you're in a, a state of complete complete and all-encompassing ignorance. You, you may have a sense. Yeah, exactly so. And 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 it's precisely uh, a uh, uh, an unknowing knowing that 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 yeah that you're describing. And and the 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 fifth, uh, which I tend to 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 uh, favor uh, characterization of God is transcendent presence. In other words, it's a sense that God is a presence to one. Um, you know, you think of so many people who have various experiences of God, and when they say God, they, they're really sort of drawing about, drawing from this experience that they had that has never been able to be repeated and has had a marked uh, uh, impact on their lives so that they remember it. Um, it was a sense of God's presence. And yet they, and it, that came to them that they didn't fabricate or make up. It came to them, but at the same time, didn't have any kind of contours where they could grab hold of it. So it's, it's kind of like absolute mystery, but it's more a sense, though, that God is present to one. So I, I use that term because I think a lot of people who are theists and, 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 and live their lives, whether they're churchgoers or not, against an horizon of God, being there, uh, that metaphor of presence with a capital P, uh, can, can, can resonate with that experience. Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting phrase, transcendent, uh, presence, because, I, I mean, you know, I mentioned, you know, kind of classic issues that theologians wrestle with. Another, another one is this idea of transcendence versus eminence. Like, is, mm-hmm. is, is God transcendent in the sense of, you know, kind of, out there or along some other dimension or is God 
imminent in- I mean you tell me you know better than I do but is God more better thought of as like kind of right here embedded in the fabric of of what we see and experience and in a funny way um transcendent presence kind of has it both ways in a, in a little does that make sense it does yeah the uh that's a lively conversation in this uh, dialogue between religion and science and christianity and science because if you're going to say that God intervenes or doesn't intervene, you always have some sort of conception of what you even mean by intervention. And then there are various positions that scientists spell out or theologians spell out in their uh, dialogue with science that allow the tightness of inner worldly causality, but at the same time make space for... Uh, for God to be present to that without being a uh, God's self, being an agent in the line of causality, but being a presence, a sustaining power behind it, but not. And very interestingly, Bob, I, this is a quite remarkable. This dialogue frequently goes back to Thomas Aquinas on this issue, where he developed a distinction which, is a clean distinction, uh, but once you try to wrap your head around it, again, it escapes you, and it's the distinction between the causality that God exercises by being present to and active in and imminent in the world, but at the same time transcending it, um, uh, and the causality that we see in everyday life, whether it be the billiard ball, Smashing the pack or the, or the, or the, the, the photons and the neutrons and, and so on interacting inside an atom. Everything, uh, uh, that is this worldly causality is distinct from an other worldly causality, namely God's sustaining the whole process and holding it in being. Why so, so- is it's an answer to the question, why is it there in any way? And it's, why, it's, why is what? I'm sorry. Why is all this world and why is all the causality uh, happening in the first place? Why? And it, it tries to answer that question with a, a content-free answer. Namely, it's the power of God that's sustaining it. Because yeah. you really can't wrap your imagination around what that causality is. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So, so I mean, the, the idea is God is a, a, a prerequisite for causality happening. It's a, is a prerequisite for the regularity we observe and is, and is in some sense deeper than the regularity itself. Absolutely. That's exactly what I'm trying to say here. The, the image that's frequently given that came from, comes from Augustine is like the, uh, like the, the, the 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 single fish in the ocean of water. In other words, the water surrounds the fish. It's a, it's the fish's horizon and world. It's inside the it's it's the sustaining milieu of the whole fish's existence. But at the same time, the fish is not the sea, and the sea is not the fish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's funny because we talk about the laws of science, and we take for granted the universe's compliance with them, but is if we don't need to go deeper, right? But, but if you, if you, if you look at the way law is used in other contexts, like when you talk about human laws being obeyed, that requires a mechanism in, of enforcement. It requires police. It requires courts. It required legislatures to lay down the laws 
So in that case, we don't think that the laws would automatically be followed. We think that there must have been something that conceived them and something that keeps them operating. Whereas with the laws of science, we kind of just take for granted that, you know, that's the end of the story. Whereas when you think about it, it's like, what does make a molecule, you know, comply? I mean, if you go down deep enough, it's like, I mean, another analogy would be, um, if you were like a, uh, like the laws, like a computer program, uh, is, software is completely regular. There, there are these if then statements and they are followed. Uh, but if you ask what makes a computer execute the logic, there's actually something deeper, which is that people, we've figured out how to harness the laws of physics to make sure that those if then statements are obeyed, right? I mean, behind the software, there is this computer with electrons and stuff doing the work. It's oh. just, just in general, when you think about it, uh, for any laws ever to be obeyed is amazing. And, 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 and you're using, you're saying one thing, one way to think of God is not the only way to think of God, but as part of the answer to the question of how and why does this keep happening the regularity we observe yeah yes and no i would say because i i don't see laws uh as um that to which reality conforms but rather the way got the way reality behaves is codified or codified and we find the patterns there and they're always changing they're always changing so i want to keep the evolutionary movement saying that uh, God is not a designer that figured all this stuff out, but God is much more open, serendipitously creative, crea- creativity, and leaves the, 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 the development of laws up to, uh, the way they have fallen out by mm. evolutionary theory. And, and to point to a, an evidence of that, I would think of, so many of the dead ends that evolutionary, uh, okay. uh, uh, you know, they, it went in this direction, but that really didn't work and it just stops, you know. So there's so many, there's so many trials and errors in the evolutionary process that, uh, God as designer is almost, a, you know, a absolute freewheeler, if you Yeah, well, I was thinking more about like laws of physics, which most physicists would say, are eternal and constant. As it happens, not all do. I mean, Lee Smolin, for example, has suggested that maybe the laws of physics actually evolve. But the conventional view, I think, is the laws of physics are constant, but at higher, at high levels of complexity and or, with organic complexity, you get contingency, what seems to be contingency. In other words, um, you know, uh, it could have been that, uh, rather than, I mean, if, if, if you imagine what happened to be that we killed off the Neanderthals, could have been that they killed off us. I mean, as it happens, something in between seems to have happened because we have some Neanderthal DNA. But, uh, but you know, you, you go back to these various, you know, if a meteor, uh, doesn't hit the planet or something, uh, and certain species don't get, ex- become extinct, all bets are off, uh, things change. At the same time, as you note in the book, there is a kind of directionality in the sense that notwithstanding the contingencies, natural selection seems to generate uh, greater uh, degrees of complexity. 
not 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 in the sense of uh in the most literally literal sense of inexorably but it's a strong tendency that seems to grow out of the laws of evolution that at at any given time if you ask what is the most complex organism you've got it's probably more complex than the most complex organism 300 million years ago or something that yeah. that is yeah. the tendency and 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 it has led so far to us which is not nothing right because it is uh relatively speaking intelligent life and it is it is self-reflective life it's it's life capable of examining its own conduct reflecting on it doing what you do ask ultimate questions and so on right so th- this brings us to the question of teleology right yeah. was uh and i've always thought i mean you, you said that um surprisingly a whole lot of theologians don't grapple with science at all i've always been a little surprised that so few theologians seem to 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 grapple with evolution because uh, in other words that so so many of them on the one hand accept it they say yeah i'm fine with the theory of natural selection but don't go the next step of saying well i guess if i believe in a in a in some sense a creator god and, and that we are a manifestation of design intent then we should think of natural selection as an instrument of divine creation right i mean does that Makes sense to you to think of it that way? It does. At least uh, I, I have problems with uh, or I have difficulties in sorting out the different meanings of teleology. Sometimes it mm-hmm. means things just fit together. And sometimes it it's modeled on the human person, you know, with a, with a mind that intends to do something. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, you read this uh, complexification of especially life. Uh, as leading in some direction, uh, and therefore you're implicitly modeling it on a big person in the sky who has a, an aim for that. Um, I, my tendency is not to go there, not because it may or may not be a legitimate argument, but it is a uh, one that I I can't I. I really can't control. I can't control it from a scientific point of view. And I'm really not sure of my premises on a humanistic experiential point of view. So. Okay. But when you I, say you don't, you don't go there, where is it exactly that you're not going? Are you saying you don't have a teleological worldview or you don't? I do have a teleological view, but I don't sort of back it up with empirical evidence. Okay. My evidence for. And we should say teleology refers to purpose. The idea that there is some, overarching purpose uh, th- that encompasses our own existence and everything. There's some larger purpose uh, yeah. unfolding or something. Yeah, and there's, there's a directionality that you point to is open-ended as far as we can see, but it's going someplace. It's, mm-hmm. it's the arrow of time is pointing at something. My My way of thinking about that issue is to premise it on uh, the fact that we are products of evolution. In, a, in other words, uh, the uh, evolution of life produced uh, Homo sapiens, and Homo sapiens is a thinking, reflective person who, uh, who can have not only consciousness of things outside itself, but self-consciousness bending back and even asking about ourselves uh, and so on. So that's the first premise in which I move to a second reflection that if we are ourselves, 
a part of the world. We are the world, but a world, uh, a part of the world that's self-conscious. So the world that is conscious of itself, then we can legitimately, as being a part of matter that is self-reflective, to discern in our very beings the logic of the world of which we are a part and which produced us. It's kind of an Hegelian move. It kind of looks at the developing human spirit and recognizes that it is not other than the world, looking at the world as if the world and the universe were something outside the self, but conceiving of ourselves being the universe itself, but in a conscious manner so that we legitimately can sort of read within our kind of universal uh, patterns of behavior the idea that we act for a reason. We act in order to do something. We spontaneously work with purpose and with goals and so on, so that reflecting on the human species itself is reflecting and our consciousness and how we behave is a reflection of the whole of the universe manifested in each one of our uh, behavior patterns and especially our self-conscious behavior. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit of an involuted argument, but it's quite intuitive and direct. Yeah, now is that related to, who was it who said, was it Dobshansky or somebody who said... Uh Evolution is the universe becoming aware of itself. Do you know that quote? I don't know, but that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, which is kind of amazing <laughs> that, that it's even possible that you've got all these like particles floating around and that's what it turns into. Um, so, uh, so on teleology, so, so you, I mean, you almost, as a Christian theologian, you pretty much have to have a teleological worldview. Yeah. You're saying, you're saying you don't, uh, base your belief in teleology on the dynamics of evolution. Uh, y- you might note that a directional evolution is more consistent, well, is in certain respects consistent with a teleological worldview, but does not by itself um, constitute proof of teleology. Exactly, and that's why I don't turn to it as if it was a shutdown argument. Okay. Um, so let's. Uh, so let me just read a couple of quotes from the book about your. I, I think these are conceptions of God that you um, you subscribe to, and 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 they might serve to kind of crystallize some of what's come before. Uh, first of all, an all-encompassing God. Um, and you go further and say, there's a sense of an all-encompassing God who does not act as a secondary cause in the world, but works as the primary agent present to and sustaining the created world. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, residing at a level d- deeper, I mean, some people might say, well, as far as I can tell, the primary agent sustaining the created world is the laws of science. You're talking about something deeper than that, that in some sense accounts for and sustains the application of the laws of science. I don't know. Yes, exactly. Uh, in other words, this prime causality or primal agent is God creating, God creating, God's creating and sustaining reality. Uh, it's unempirical. You can't sort of see it and so on. The, the proof for it or the, 
the evidence for it is an, what I would call a religious experience, an experience of being dependent not on simply the forces of nature that generated me, but more deeply being uh, dependent on a, 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 the reason <clears throat> for there being reality at all. So why is there anything at all? Apply to me. Why am I thrown into existence and here I stand? Uh, so this sense of being um, dependent. I mean, I don't take this as a knockdown proof of, of, of God by any means. People can say, of course, I'm dependent. I'm dependent on the genes of my parents and, and, and so on. I'm dependent on the forces and the vectors that that led to my existence. So you're re- I'm really transferring, and this is what a religious experience is, it's transforming a kind of naturalistically explained experience and entering into another dimension with it. Some would say metaphysical. It's behind the physical. It's a conception of reality that uh, credits a power of being that is sustaining the whole of things. And I take that to be experiential. I don't and think it, you can argue put somebody into that position, right? Uh, and so on. It's it's an experiential so, thing. So if somebody says to you, "Well, I don't need to go deeper than the laws of uh, science," you can say that there's this thing that's deeper, and you can call it God. But I don't feel I need myself. Is is part of your answer that you've actually had religious experiences that make you? Uh, believe that there's something deeper have you have you personally had religious uh, experiences of this kind uh yes i wouldn't put it in a plural, plural sense because i wouldn't point to this one or that one but i would talk talk, talk about a deeper sensibility uh a deeper uh recognition uh, partly rational partly feeling i mean i'm not going to locate it into some sort of uh uh, area of the brain and so on, but a kind of overall sense that uh, the whole of reality is dependent on a uh, a one that su- sustains it. Namely, uh, a good uh, popular cosmologist, uh, Sean Carroll, uh, practically says what you just said. Uh, scientists don't have to explain why reality is there. It's there, and we work on it. We try to understand its mechanism. Um, and he, he, he says point blank, I don't need to answer the question of why it's there. Uh, no, but it's still a good it. question. I mean, he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't answer it because he doesn't feel required to answer it, and he wouldn't have any evidence if he, if he tried to. And he's a good scientist, and therefore he needs evidence. But there are others who have this kind of religious experience. And, and, and behind all these faith traditions, all these religions, is some kind of deep experience that is tapping into the ability of the human mind to ask the question and to, uh, and to experience however, you know, there are various descriptions of what a typical religious experience is. Uh, and so for using any given one of them uh, to to explain that the givenness of reality is because of something that's holding it there and and is 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 its ultimate rationale for being there yeah i mean there are a number of descriptions there's the um 
I mean, are you talking to some extent about what's called a mystical experience, or would you just call a mystical experience a subset of religious experience? I don't well, the, the latter. I follow William James on that. He's quite clear that all religious experience is mystical, and to to put mystical experience someplace off in a category, it's just sort of uh, an exaggerated case mm-hmm. of what is the case in anybody who has a an experience of something much larger than the whole of created reality itself. Yeah. Now, now the bare-bones generic part of his definition of mystical experience is something that's, uh, the term is uh, ineffable, that is indescribable, but uh, what's the term he uses for noetic? Imparting knowledge, noetic, but ineffable, indescribable. Uh, but then he does go on in varieties of religious experience to note some common characteristics that you sometimes find in so an oceanic feeling or and and we've heard and some of us have had things that that uh not just in western tradition but in eastern tradition have had you know a sense of uh connection with everything else or a sense of dissolution of the bounds of self i guess you're saying that not none of none of those that i've listed are essential characteristics of a religious experience um but is there I, I guess, what would you say? Would you say that what they have in common is this sense of something beyond or or what? Yes, exactly. I would say that that's why I call it beyond the physical, the meta, something be deeper than or behind or underneath that experience. And, and there are different ways of characterizing it. And, and even, uh, and, and James is so good on that. Uh, so the very phrases that you use from James, I would incorporate them. I would use them, this this kind of sensibility and being openness to a whole world that is deeper than and responsible for the everydayness of reality. Um, that somehow impinges on my consciousness. In other words, mm-hmm. it does, it's not produced by me that it comes to me uh, from outside myself. Mm-hmm. Now, Another, uh, I guess, kind of objection or skepticism you get is, okay, granted that you sent something that's kind of beyond, but that in itself sounds like a pretty fuzzy apprehension. How do you get from there to the idea that it's, you know, it's on the one hand, you're going to say it's not like a being that we should think of as anthropomorphic. At the same time, it's something that you're in some sense in communion with and maybe in some sense in communication with. Uh, something that you're deriving a kind of psychological, spiritual sustenance from, right? I mean, that's the, the next question is, is, you know, you seem to have a conception of this, and maybe this is where faith and your particular faith upbringing comes in, but, um, but that's a question you get, right? Yeah, it is. And, and, and I, I do, uh, too, have a subtle answer to that, too. In other words, it's not a simple, uh, uh, you know, an oceanic experience is, you know, it, it communicates something in a vague way, but it, but it, it's not very, very definite. Uh, it's precisely in its indefinite, uh, definiteness. So I would combine two things in a religious experience that, that helps explain it. The one is that, uh, that it happens within oneself. It's, it's a, it's an experience from within or within oneself of something greater than oneself being present to oneself and, 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 and so on. But at the same time, in order to have a definite content 
in, in, in the most general terms, and not just a simple feeling that's there, but some sort of content to it requires uh, a, a, a medium, a mediation, an event, or a, a scripture, or a prophet, or a, or a, 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 a religious tradition, a community, and so on, all of which helps you to identify and give a language so that you can just not have this as a private experience, but you can begin to plumb, plumb analogies or, or, or commonalities within great differences always uh, of other people having this experience. So this is what I see as, uh, as the role of Jesus Christ for the Christian. Um, how does a Christian know anything about this thing that it's calling serendipitous creativity or the pure energy of being that's holding me in existence? Well, I look to some teacher and the teacher tells me uh, its character. And for a Christian, Jesus of Nazareth plays that role. I would suggest that that the Buddha plays that role for uh for uh, Buddhists, I mean, there are so many different kinds of Buddhists, I don't want to ter- generalize, generalize too. But broadly speaking, they appeal to uh, the sayings and the practices of Buddha to, 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 to identify their relationship to the, to the whole mm-hmm. and their interconnectedness with the all that is, uh, uh, whether it be naturalist and and so on, this ordered world that uh, somehow has manifested itself in me and somebody else is explaining that to me to, to, to give me a common language that I can share with others. Yeah, I was going to bring Jesus up, as you might have guessed. Um, kind of an important figure in, in your line of work. The, um, and I guess a couple of issues may be, arise one gets back to the question of intervention you know if if you don't imagine an interventionist god and you're you've got a kind of scientific view of the world evolution happens it's one species uh you know even if you grant that the dice were loaded in the favor of an, the eventual emergence of an intelligent species and maybe that's part of the plan okay fine but you would think it would be hard to load the dice so precisely that this particular figure arises in, you know, 2000 years ago in Palestine and, and so on. Um, so in other words, uh, I, I would think a lot of people would say, if you, if you're as a Christian going to tell me that Jesus was a figure that's special in the way you say, I mean, up to and including the claim that this is divinity in a sense that embodies divinity in the sense that no other human has embodied divinity. Well, it's hard to imagine that happening without intervention. There's that, uh, there's that kind of, uh, issue that's raised for someone, uh, who's writing the book you wrote, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there, there are just the, um, you know, the, the, the standard questions like, well, why should we imagine that this, that God would choose this particular, uh, group of Middle Easterners to share the revelation with, uh, and not, mention anything to people who were in China at the same time, right? No, and and no. you've alluded to this by bringing the Buddha in, but and maybe this is the kind of thing that got you in trouble with the Vatican to begin with. Uh you tell me, but uh 
But, you know, these, these questions of, of Jesus as the path to salvation, Jesus as the unique revelation, as the embodiment of divinity, um, are, are difficult questions for somebody who's gonna, uh, you know, again, write the, the particular book you've written. Yes, well, they're, they're, they're not only, uh, difficult questions, they're very, very highly sensitive, uh, because you're getting it to the core of, of Christian faith. So you really have to tiptoe through the, this, this material and, and, um, the, uh, the, uh, fulsome in your experience, in your explanation of what you're trying to do. So I make a couple of moves here by which I want to preserve the divinity of Jesus and at the same time, uh, open up our, the Christian, the Christian understanding of reality so that uh, God's revelation to humankind is not exclusively uh, through Jesus of Nazareth, but rather uh, can be found in other religious uh, 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 figures as well in a non-competitive way. And here I'm appealing to some of your own ideas of the zero-sum game. We don't want to look at the religions in competition with each other, but somehow see them as uh, all uh, sort of uh, opening up the human imagination to the presence of God within reality. So the moves that I make is to uh, talk about the divinity of Jesus in a way that does not separate Jesus from the rest of humankind, but sees Jesus as a member of the human race and therefore truly a human being like us in all things, as the scripture has it, uh, the New Testament. Um, but at the same time, uh, through God's presence to all human beings, to understand Jesus and Jesus' divinity as a more intense presence of God to him in such a way that one can say that uh, we look to him as a genuine, authentic revelation of God so that God was within, at work in him in a distinctive way relative to other human beings. Now, um, that's tricky. That's tricky. Um, and um, if I were to appeal to the New Testament for validation of this particular um, uh uh, way of explaining Jesus's divinity in such a way that he's not raised out of the human pool, but seen as a member to whom God was intensely uh, present. I, I, I would differentiate some of the Christologies that you find in the pages of New Testament. There are many. We should say that Christologies to theologians, those are in, in essence, I mean, Ways of situating Jesus in your theology? Is that what a Christology is? A Christology, yeah, is a uh, rationale and a, and a, um, an explanation for the position that Jesus holds in the Christian imagination and okay. how Jesus relates to, to, to world in, in, in Christian faith. So it's focused on Jesus Christ. So it's called Christology. Okay. Um, there are many Christologies in the New Testament, but two stand out. Um, one is the Christology that's found in the beginning of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, the word was made flesh. 
and dwelt among us. That Christology, which uh, is suffused with Greek language, really took off when Christianity spread out of Palestine, north and west, and then east, uh, and so on. But in the Greek, Greek, Greco-Roman culture, where, where Greek uh, intellectual culture really prevailed, that Christology really won the day. But in terms of the prevalence of Christologies in the New Testament, spirit Christology. So what made Jesus Jesus in a distinctive way and closer to God than anybody else? The prophet who spoke for God and represented God. uh, It was the spirit of God that worked in Jesus' conception, that worked in his life and gave him power, that authorized his ministry, that was communicated at his baptism. All through the the, the, the the Gospels, the Spirit of God is the agency of God working within Jesus as God works in all human beings, but in Jesus in a special way uh, to make him in a distinctive way the representative of God. Now, this can be understood in a non-competitive way. It does not subtract from Jesus' authorization by the divine spirit working in him to say that the divine spirit blows where it wills. It can be found at work in the uh, revelations in the Quran to Muhammad. It can be found in Moses' encounter with God at, 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 uh, you know, the, the, liberation of the Hebrew people from Egyptian uh, captivity or from the giving of Sinai that cemented a covenant with God. So the spirit was working in Moses as a, as a leader and therefore so on. So the claims of Jesus about Jesus by Christians are elevated because there are different theologies, but the manifestation of God as spirit in Jesus can be understood that makes him the revealer of God in a special way, but at the same time, not in a competitive way with other, the Mm -hmm. spirit working in other um, Mm -hmm. mediations of God's presence in the, in the world. Yeah. um, Let me say a couple of things. One is, uh, you know, the first, um, the theology at the beginning of the book of John in the beginning uh, was a word, you know, the word word, as you know, is a translation of the Greek word logos, which was a, a philosophical concept uh, that implies a kind of a, a kind of a reason, a logic, kind of running through the affairs of the world, maybe governing the universe, whatever. Um, I've always thought that that has the idea of the logos has rich possibilities uh, for a kind of uh, modern theology. I actually got into this a little in my book, The Evolution of God. I talked about, you know, Philo of Alexandria's uh, yes. theology of the logos. Yes. Um, but the 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 other thing I want to mention is a, a Christology that you mentioned in the book, uh, but didn't just mention, which is the so-called Second Adam Christology of Paul, which which is uh, involves original sin, as I understand it, right? And 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 it's funny this idea so pervaded my own Christian upbringing that I didn't even, you know, when I later realized that Paul had kind of thought it up or put, you know, put it together, that was kind of, 
uh, I was surprised that somebody had to invent it. It seems so embedded in Christianity. But the idea is Adam, uh, you know, kind of put when Adam uh, sinned, Adam and Eve, you know, the fruit, <laughs> ate the fruit of the tree, that injected sin into the human lineage it is transmitted from human to human. I mean, I mean, that's actually the, a doctrine of original sin that I, that was, I wasn't so conscious of. But what I was conscious of was the idea that Jesus is kind of the other end of the story. Yeah. Jesus mm-hmm. alleviates you of that burden. If you believe in Jesus, in Jesus, you're, you're, as your savior, you're, you're liberated from the burden of sin that's been, uh, passed down since Adam. Th- there's something uh, about that, the, that Christology that, seems to me resonates with part of evolution. I mean, evolution doesn't uh, sustain the idea of original sin. If by original sin you mean some human or more distant ancestor screwing up along the way. Right. Uh, but it does, it is consistent with the idea that sinful tendencies are transmitted to us and we inherit them at birth. I mean, I think, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you know, kind of, Tendencies toward greed, lust, violence, I think, can be plausibly attributed to our evolutionary background. Um, and uh, I don't know how you handle the other end of it, um, you know, if you're uh, exactly. It, it doesn't uh, have to be Jesus per se, but, but, I mean, maybe just becoming self-conscious organisms and reflective in the way you're reflecting, in the way that moral philosophers reflect, in the way that we all reflect, um, is in a way is the way we may ultimately be able to achieve a kind of a liberation from the burden of our our um, you know our, our the less fortunate part of our biological heritage. I don't know yeah. if um, yeah. I, you mentioned original sin in the book. Um, Big time. What's that? Big time. Right. So what yeah. what do you how do you react to that? What yeah. I just said. Well, I, 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 I take up where you, uh, uh, mentioned that, uh, an original sin in, in prehistoric time or early time, it, it just doesn't fit in, in an evolutionary mm-hmm. world. I mean, uh, the ideal of humanity is up in front of us. It's not behind us. If we didn't fall from a, a pristine thing. And, and my problem with original sin is that, it's very, very difficult to separate off the meaning of original sin from the biblical account of Adam and Eve and so on. In other words, mm-hmm. that those two stories are so wedded together, the doctrine of original sin, which both refers to the originating sin and the condition that it left behind, uh, uh, has those two meanings at the same time. Uh, it, uh, so that, that is so wedded to the biblical account, which is then taken as a literal story uh, as the beginning, that it's almost unredeemable. So my answer to that is to d- dismiss the doctrine of original sin, because it also influences the doctrine of Jesus Christ in a way that is intolerable and People are reacting against it all the time, but not carrying through on their reaction against it, namely that Jesus was meant to suffer and die as a sacrifice to 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 uh, assuage the the an angry god at the at at human sin so um, 
my construction is to want to give an evolutionary explanation for sin. Uh, the, the point of the doctrine of original sin was to, to, to make sure that it was blamed on human beings and not blamed on the creator. Um, but we can, can associate our tendency to sin precisely as you said, from evolutionary forces and evolutionary power, uh, uh, uh vectors of that, that, that want to sort of protect not only the species, but protect the individual. We cling to life, basically. And, uh, and it's a first instinct and it's an instinct of self-perfection, preservation and preservation of, uh, of, of not only ourselves, but also our species. So I really want to get rid of the doctrine of original sin, not in order just to get rid of it, but in order to open up a more positive view of what Jesus Christ is about, namely a revealer of the character of God that identifies this feeling within ourselves of, of a divine presence out there, but also within us, to, to, to see his positive role as being the identifier, the representative, I call it, the representative of God for uh, not the only one, not the exclusive one, not the one that everybody has to hold on to, but a valid, really revealer of the character of of God. Uh, there is a tendency, given <laughs> given the given the the the, the char- given the the magnitude of the roles that Jesus Christ plays in a Christian imagination, for people to say, "You mean that's all he did? That's all he did." I say that's all he did, and that's everything. That is to say, to reveal the very character of the God who is the sustainer of life itself, of reality itself. Okay, uh, so we've covered a lot of ground, but I would be remiss if I didn't give you a chance um, before we close to um, tell us exactly what you mean by the subtitle. So the title of your book is Faith and Evolution. subtitle is A Grace-Filled Naturalism. So naturalism being, you know, a more or less, I guess, uh, scientific worldview, that's what it connotes to me. Uh, and, and, uh, grace, of course, is an idea with, uh, uh, you know, rich, uh, kind of theological history. What, what do you, um, you know, and, and I take grace in that context to be kind of, um, a sense of, uh, gratitude for a recognition, recognition of, I don't know, the, 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 the gifts, that uh, well, I guess you could characterize the gifts in various ways, but but yeah. something of, of divine origin generally. What what do you mean by um what do you mean by grace filled naturalism? Yeah, uh, uh, there's a whole uh, a line of thought uh, in Christian theology that tries to identify and characterize uh, what God's uh, um, loving concern for human beings, how that plays out. And that's called the theology of grace. It, it both identifies uh, the character of God being uh, a benevolent, loving, and caring God, mm-hmm. but it also spells out how that love and care is manifested in human lives. So in the, in the, um, in the writings of the Hebrew scriptures, you see, the power of God as spirit working within people, working for Israel, working 
uh, in individuals responding to uh, 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 petitions uh, and, and and blessing people uh, and so on. And that carries over into the New Testament where God's spirit is spread into the community through the name and ministry of Jesus, released into the community so that God is experienced within the community as working within human lives and within the community itself. So grace is not just uh, being grateful to God or God's graciousness to us, but it has a theological representation of God acting within the human species, within human persons as spirit, as uplifting, as moving, as inspiring, as revealing and making God's uh, self manifest uh, in, in, in human life. So, um, uh, God's, a grace-filled naturalism says, listen, science describes the world as we know it and does it very, very carefully with measurement and so on. And by slow increment, the whole world of scientists in their different disciplines is adding to our understandings of the mechanism of, of, of the world. I want to say that that whole process uh, that is being exposed by science, the naturalism of our world, is deeply sustained by and is working through God working within it. So uh, this grace filling, the spirit of God working within the whole thing, is not different from God's creative power within things. It's not, it's the same, it's the same idea. Creation and creation, creating power of God is just a different language saying the same thing that God is the within of all reality and is a gracious presence that holds, uh, not only, uh, everything in existence, but promises, uh, the, the Homo sapiens, if not the whole universe, uh, a value that is more than the ephemeral passing from existence to non-existence that we see. That there is, that, 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 that the value of human life especially is not cheap. That mm-hmm. it's worthy. And this God who is the sustaining and grace filling of, 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 of the natural order of things, but also of, of human history and human life and so on. That is giving um, the whole of it a um, a value that it would not have if God were not there. Okay, and I think maybe I earlier identified grace as the gratitude for the gift, but it, but that's conventionally. I mean, that's wrong. Grace is more more God, uh, closely God. identified with a gift for which we are to be grateful. Exactly. Now, in 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 traditional. Theology, I, I, I think if you go way back, the idea is one reason we're supposed to be grateful is because we're unworthy, kind of, right? And in that sense, it's tied into the doctrine maybe of original sin. I don't know. But in any event, uh, it, it's, uh, your, I gather your, your, your take on it is less that we're unworthy as that, uh, we should take note of, uh, of, 
of the gift. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. It, it's a kind of optimistic view of reality that I'm proposing here. It's a very, very yeah. positive view of things. It does not look at creation, does not look at Christianity as a response to sin. It looks well, and at, I, I just, at, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, it looks uh, at Christianity as uh, Jesus Christ revealing a God who is uh, underneath all of this and, and, Taking the values that uh, that mm-hmm. scientists hold dear, like the, the 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 integrity of seeking the truth and not falsifying evidence, deep values like that that are reflected mm-hmm. in 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 the the scientific enterprise itself, that those values are valid, 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 and there's a validating principle that makes them, uh, yeah. makes them values that are absolute. Well, you know, the very fact that it's like something to be alive is something we shouldn't take for granted because it's actually one of the things that science um, doesn't have a satisfactory explanation of, in my view. I mean, the mystery of consciousness remains the mystery of consciousness, and um, and. Uh, so, and I'd rather rather be living in a universe that has it than not. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, Roger, thank you so much. Um, again, the book is Faith and Evolution: A Grace-Filled Naturalism by Roger uh, Haight. Uh, who uh, I guess if we want to sell books, we should we should uh, call you a controversial Catholic theologian since you did get in trouble with the Vatican. But I guess all has been forgiven. I hope uh, so. Yes. Yeah, and uh and again your um your Union Theological Seminary where I I am technically visiting professor of science and religion. Um and uh it's a great place. It's a great place. I agree. A lot of great a lot of great people there. Yeah. Uh so so thank you Roger. Really appreciate you taking the time and and good luck with the book. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate your uh, interview and uh, the conversation has been very revelatory for me, too, as I respond <laughs> spontaneously to your questions. Yeah. Uh, well, you're too kind, but I really enjoyed it myself. Thanks.